Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent, and as you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and that book is available as a paperback and audiobook, but the ebook, esteemed reader, oh, the ebook is free. Yes, free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Don't worry about me. I'll get your money once you're hooked on the story and you come back for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People and Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy, plus books four, five, and six that I'll eventually probably write. So we'll, we'll, we'll be square. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some novels for older readers. You can find out more about those. And more importantly, you can find interviews with thousands of literary agents, editors, authors, publicists, book people, the world's best people, available exclusively at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, and by God, that's more than enough intro. We got to get started. My guest today is none other than Diane Magris. Uh, Diane, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Rob. It's great to be here. I am thrilled to chat with you. I've got all kinds of questions for you about uh, uh, secret shadow spiders and uh, fantasy monsters and all, all kinds of uh, good stuff. But esteemed audience knows that I never torture my guests by making them sit through me summarizing either their biography or their uh, book. Why would you want to sit through me doing either of those things when you're right here and can do a better job? Uh, so please, if you would, to get us started, give uh, esteemed audience an overview of your background. Sure. So I have always been a storyteller, and this is something I tell school audiences whenever I present, that I interrupted my father whenever he read to me when I was little, and he was reading books like The Hobbit, Wind in the Willows, and I would stop him in the middle and say, actually, this is what happened. And I take a character and I tell the story from their perspective. And so I think of that as kind of the formative moment of my formative moments of my childhood and just the tradition. I think everyone who knew about that could see that I would become a writer one day. And I've been writing, um, telling stories and then writing ever since. I wrote my first novel when I was in seventh grade and I owe my seventh grade ELA teacher, Lisa Plord for that because she encouraged me, she challenged me to write a novel having read some of my stories. And I continued to write novels just for pleasure, just for myself for many years I first began trying to get published a little bit before my son was born in 2007 and didn't have much luck and kept trying, kept writing because I love to write. And then when he began reading middle grade fiction, I began writing it because I love the genre. And um, I just found the books that he was reading so exciting and so thrilling. And that's how I came up with my debut novel, um, The Mad Wolf's Daughter, which was published in 2018. And uh, I think of it as a book that really links me with so many of my interests. It's the story of a medieval girl with a sword who rushes off through a Scottish landscape to rescue her family from being hanged for their crimes. It was a load of fun um, to write and full of characters that just lived in my mind. Um, and still live in my mind. And I've been fortunate enough to have two other books published since. Now, in the middle of all of that, I should mention that I've had a day job. I work in fundraising for cultural nonprofits, which is a really fun day job because it allows me to tell stories to a lot of people about the work that my organization does. And that's something I always want people to know that most authors don't support themselves by their writing alone. And you can still be an author, you can still be a writer, 
you can still feel this profession deep in your bones while doing something else that pays the bills. That's kind of my summary of my, my background. It's ongoing, all of that still. I'm working on my next novel and uh, still doing my day job and having fun with both. Good, sounds like you're living the charm life, the dream. Uh, as much as anybody is here uh, post-2020. <laughs> so, uh, well, a question that I had for you uh, is, is as you're describing you interrupting Mr. Tolkien to say, no, get out of here, sir. Let me tell your Hobbit story better than you can. Um, now that she was on the other foot, you've got three books out there. If young uh, readers are stopping their parents in mid-sentence in your book and taking over and, and, and saying what Dressed is going to do instead, strong feelings about that? I think that's fabulous. If anyone wants to write fan fiction about any of my work, I would say go for it. I think that's just wonderful. I've had some students create their own stories, actually, or their own art that goes with the books. I've had um, a fourth grade class actually here in Maine tell me what they want to happen next. And they've actually constructed a potential third book for me with lots of ideas, a lot more violence than actually I put into my work. <laughs> but it's, um, it's, it's I, I just think that's wonderful. And I welcome anyone who wants to take any of my characters and create their own um, based on it. Because once you take a character and you start writing with it, no matter who started the character, it becomes your creation and you put yourself into it so if any any young reader wants to do that I would be immensely flattered I wonder if you are having a conversation with an editor in the future about this this is maybe a little bit too violent for children take out those notes from the kids I'm like nope this is what they want <laughs> <laughs> they're way more violent than me <laughs> there was there was a story that actually that that the teacher of that class told me that um, they were reading the end of the second book. She was reading that aloud to them and the students were chanting, kill him, kill him. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's not what I was trying to inspire, but. I have warmth in my books. I have scenes of great human compassion. Compassion is big in those books, but whew. <laughs> <laughs> we all know that's just the filler you have to read to get to the <laughs> Now, uh, I'm curious because I know that uh, you were a big reader as a child, right? Oh, yes. I uh, wrote an entire novel as a teenager in a library. Do I have that mythology? Oh, yes, I've been, well, I, did, I wrote, so I wrote my first novel, um, its title was Bianca, and I don't remember much about it except for it involved a girl, a boy, and a sword. And I'm ashamed to admit that the girl was not the sword bearer of that book. I don't know what was wrong with me, but there was a massive sword that, that was important to me in my, in my first book as well as my first published book. And I continued to write uh, novels. I, I love to involve history in my work. I didn't know a lot of history then, certainly the way I do now. I mean, certainly being older, I've learned so much all these years. So I'd go to my local library and I would just plunk myself down in the history section and near a book that looked interesting or a period of history that I wanted to write about and just take out books, read them if I needed to. And then just, um, I would write my character sketches. I'd write scenes from my next novel I wrote a lot of novels during that period, during my high school years and, and beyond. I was a very avid, fast writer, 
I only wrote first drafts, <laughs> so <laughs> they didn't really go very far, but still, though, I think I consider that amazing practice and just a great use of my imagination all those years. But yes, I just I have wonderful memories of sitting upstairs, the Jessup Memorial Library in Bar Harbor in the history section, just fishing books off the shelf when I needed a, a spark of inspiration for what I was working on. Well, when you get it perfect the first time, you don't need a second draft, right? <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> uh, when I uh, lead workshops and I've got um, new writers who are just starting and they want to rewrite and rewrite their story with without fixing the, the 10 or 20 plot problems, structural problems that they need to address, I think it's better just, you know what, write the whole thing. Just get it, get it out, get it out a couple of times, get in the habit of writing full stories, then start picking them apart because you're going to go through a period where you're paralyzed. Oh my God, everything I do is, is possibly wrong. I can't do anything. So it's better if you just get in the habit of, of going through like a freight train first and then finding that balancing act between the, the thrill and joy of uh, drafting versus the responsible um, uh, pulling back and of revision. And there's so much, I find there's so much creativity in revision too. I mean, your novel can transform. You've got the bones of it down. You've got the bones of your story and just being able to flesh it out or, you know, move a bone around if you need to. But I didn't always love revision. Um, certainly I found it, <laughs> I found it really challenging and demoralizing, I think, as a young writer. But these days, uh, I just, it's magical how a story just comes together. And I love how first drafts allow, allow me to be utterly free. I can write whatever I want. To, you know, I, it can be messy, it can be sloppy. I can I learn about my characters. And you just, I, I certainly discover um, wonderful plot points as I go along. I'll drop something in and then I'll say, oh, wait a minute that ties to this part later on. That's how I come up with so many of the plot points that end up in my final manuscript in that first draft, those, those plot points by chance, you know, as I just let the story spin and the characters find their way on their own. It's a little gifts from your subconscious or your muse or maybe both. Yes, for all the books I've read. <laughs> the many yeah, books I've read, the shows I've watched and the films and so forth. My mind is yeah, those all have a way of sneaking in disguised as original thoughts. Yes. What's interesting, actually, in uh, Secret of the Shadow Beasts, I was talking with a colleague of mine who'd, who'd read it, and she works with uh, my organization's discussion programs for veterans. And she had noticed that in Secret of the Shadow Beasts, uh, the, the story is about, it takes place in a world where Umbrai, shadow beasts, descend upon the human populations every night. They come out at twilight, at gloaming. Um, they destroy anyone. They bite and poison anyone they can get, and then they disappear at dawn. And the only ones who can defeat them are kids who are immune to their venom. That doesn't mean they're constantly immune. It means they don't die instantly when they're bitten. And they can use a special metal, the castle iron, which is the only thing that can destroy them. These kids are gathered by their government to train to learn to fight this nationwide threat. And the protagonist, the story is about Nora Kemp, the protagonist who joins this a little bit later than she should and learns about this world and learns about the, the secrets and the deadly monsters, bonds with her friends in, in the group. But one of the things that my colleague noticed was that in this, um, in this world, these kids who are the soldiers, the warriors of their society 
are protected by their organization. Their government takes care of them. Their government takes care of their families when the kids leave to train. And when the kids are done with their service, the government provides them with jobs, mental health services, anything they need and takes care of them for the rest of their lives. And my colleague said, that's a great model for what our society should do. And I thought, yeah, that's one of the many, many things of the of real, the real life world that we have, the problems in real life that, you know, filtered into that book where I, I have a world that I think is, um, is better <laughs> despite the monsters <laughs> in some ways, the way people like, treat each other. My colleague gave me the, the most wonderful compliment. She said, I'd like to live in that world. And then she said, without the monsters, without the monsters, but I thought, wow. That's a fair trade. Yeah. I will take the monsters over Ted Cruz fist bumping when he takes away veterans' health care. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Bring on the spiders. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, now, now here we are. We're talking the secret of the shadow beast, which is available now. So how did you come to decide that seven would be the appropriate age to start uh, for the children to start training to, to take on these monsters? I was trying to think of how old a child could be to start that really, um, I don't hesitate to say thoughtfully, but to start this completely different life um, without being too much damaged by being removed from their families. I mean, it, age seven is, would be a tough age anyway. I mean, thinking about my, my son as he was growing up, seven-year-olds are imaginative and starting to be really, um, brave and out there in their worlds. I mean, that was a, that was a big period of confidence and growth that I saw among my son's friends when he was seven. And so I thought about that as, as a good age to begin. And of course, the government institution that starts training them, takes care of them, you know, shows them affection and, but most of all, shows them respect and helps them understand this important role that they're playing and that they will play once they're ready to do it. I was thinking about child psychology and what seven-year-olds really are. I have a lot of respect for kids. Seven, seven's the perfect age to go get ready to start fighting monsters. Don't start fighting them yet, but start getting ready. Train, the train, because they play games. They play training games. They start just by learning about what they're going to do, but not the scary stuff yet, not the stuff that, you know, most people know about, in fact, everyone in this society knows about the threat of the, of the monsters, and everyone knows that the people who train to fight them, to be the knights, as they call them, are amazing, are heroic kids, and so it's, it's a big deal. If you're seven years old and you're feeling like you're out in the world, you, can, you, you feel that sense of empowerment that you do as a child at that age, and suddenly you're told, okay, you're immune you have this potential to become one of them, one of these heroic kids. I could see that being a great age um, too, to start that. But then they play training games. So just things to help them get used to the kind of movements that they'll need to do once they're fighting and make it just in their, in their blood. Oh, here's my cat. You gonna come up? Here. Yeah, here she is. Everybody loves a good cat. <laughs> but um yeah so they they don't even have their weapons until they're 
older, until they're much older, actually. It's all, it's all games, it's all learning the history, it's all learning, it's all learning until they're around 10 or 11 and then they start using the weapons. They, but it's all athletics too, they start running seriously <laughs> at age seven. And that was, that was fun to write because I, I have a running scene where my protagonist who joins this group at age 12 because her father did not want her to join when she was seven, when she had her immunity test and was found to be eligible to enter this track to be a hero. He just didn't want that life for his daughter. But he dies from an Umbrai bite and um, her mother almost dies. Mother, mother gets attacked by one when she goes out unwisely after dark. And so Nora decides on her own to, to go to offer herself and finds that the government organization um, has been waiting for her and wants her still. So she has not had that whole training experience. And so I have a scene later on where everyone else, the, the, the order, the team that she's part of, is doing their normal, they're running, they, they run laps for 20 minutes, or is it 20 minutes? I can't remember if that was 20 minutes or 20 laps, but they, I think they run 20 laps, that's right, to start the, every day. And they run fast. I mean, they're, they've been doing this since they were seven. They are really good athletes. Well, Nora has been playing video games and playing fiddle and knitting and does not run, as she puts it. And so that's a that was just a really fun scene to write as somebody who has run and also not run and certainly did not run when I was Nora's age <laughs> and remembering how miserable it was to be somebody who wasn't as athletic as everyone around me, um, trying to do cross country, trying to do well and not doing particularly well. And so I kind of embodied that in, um, in Nora and also had her say some things that I would have said if I had had the courage, such as, I don't run if I don't have to. Uh, I'm, I'm often struck uh, by nobody who's been on this show, of course, but young adult authors that I've met in real life. Uh, and sometimes they'll admit that, yes, of course, I'm rewriting my high school history. This is the teenage years I wish I had had. Do you, do you find that to be true sometimes of, uh, of, of your childhood? If you had lived in a world, obviously, with, with monsters, you had to go and fight. Oh, definitely, definitely. There's so much wish fulfillment in all of my books. I mean, I'm dressed in my very first book. She's, I always wanted a sword when I was a kid. <laughs> my dad did fencing when he was in college. So there was this old fencing foil in our basement and I discovered it one day. And fencing isn't, well, for me, actually fencing was kind of, kind of fun. We only had one foil though. So that really wasn't <laughs> much of a, <laughs> much of a competition or anything. But I ended up hanging it on my wall above my, above my bed. So I had a fencing foil as my sword, as my sword, but I wanted a, you know, massive, <laughs> I love what Antonio, Antonio Cabero did. Look at that massive broadsword on the, on the cupboard. That's what I wanted. So I gave it to Dressed and I gave her a background where she was incredibly athletic. I mean, she's like a Marine. I was thinking that when I wrote the second book, there's a, there's a tense scene where she's escaping from some people who are after her and they're shooting crossbows at her and she's climbing a cliff. And I, as I thought, I thought, is this humanly possible? So I was looking things up online just to see about 
training, could somebody actually do this who'd had her kind of training all her life? And um, it was possible, but she was like a Marine to be able to stay calm and focus and push her body. That's so different from who I was because I was a kid who read a lot. I did a little bit of exercise, but I wasn't by any means an athletic kid and wrote a lot and um, played video games. And <laughs> that's, that would have been fun. That just would have been fun. The athleticism, but also the boundless confidence. That's another thing that kids have pointed out that she's just so sure of herself. And I wasn't when I was a kid. That's one of the reasons I think that I wrote to have a world where I could be in control and be sure of myself, be in charge, make the decisions and feel really good about myself, which I didn't always when I was a kid. So it's, it's nice to model, model how other kids, how kids can feel that way. It's been interesting because a lot of, a lot of students love dressed the most, understandably, I guess, the protagonist, but they, they really, they really feel connected with her. I think even if they aren't as confident as she is, but I think she might be a bit of wish fulfillment for a lot of people. It's been one of your favorite reader reactions to Dressed or to any of your books. Oh, I think, I mean, kids who come up, I've, I was at a, I was at a um, event last fall and just the kids who came up who had read Madel's Daughter, um, before the pandemic and just wanted to tell me how much it meant to them. And just kids who came up with their book, their kind of battered, you know, thumbed hardcover. And that was just lovely. And then I had, this is actually really wonderful. There is a very serious um, six-year-old who came up to me with his mom. And his mom told me that she'd been listening to the audiobook of Madel's daughter. And when he was five, Maybe he was five at the time still. And um, he had listened and he had enjoyed it so much that he insisted that they check out the second audiobook from the library. And I thought, wow, I have a five year old reader. That is so, so amazing. But he listened to them both. He was, he was very serious and very quiet, but his mom said he'd like to talk about the characters, he liked to talk about the actions. So I thought, that's, that's great. She's got quite a reader in her in her family. He's two years away from being ready to train, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I wanted to ask a, a bit about uh, world building because there's um, you know there's there's no sheltering children in this uh, in, the, in this world um, for the the secret of the shadow beast um, because at the gloaming the monsters come out. There's there's no way to let them. To, to keep them from that, they're, they're going to know that that's that that's happening. But that also has implications for uh, for everything. So, how much time do you spend on world building before you write, or while you write, and after you write to to make sure you're getting all those implications? I I spend it. It just depends on each book. So, for Secret of the Shadow Beast, I'd come up with the basic premise a long time ago. I mean, years ago, and so I was poking around with it. Well, the monsters coming, um, coming to decimate humankind. I was poking around different versions of that. I think I probably spent about a month off and on. Yeah, probably a month off and on. So concentrated, maybe a full week, but spread out 
um, coming up with the the premise of the of the world. And then as I wrote it, I discovered things as I went on. So I write for Secret of the Shadow Beasts. I wrote. I think three full rewrites, so complete revisions with the same skeleton of the story, but some major changes, including the ending, just trying out different versions of that. And it was by the final one that I really understood the world and who this government organization was. I had to make the choice too, whether they would be evil or not. And it's very easy to make a government organization, it's very easy to make everything in your book that opposes your protagonist evil, you know, the government organization, the monsters. I don't like to do that. I like to have things have a lot of gray areas. And I thought in this world we're living in right now to have so much evil descending upon these kids, that would be really hard for kids to read and frankly, really hard for me to write. So I made the, the conscious choice to make this government organization in a very hard place. I mean, they live in this, they, they're trying to help this world where literal monsters come and destroy people at night. And people, a lot of people who don't see the monsters, don't see the Umbrai regularly, assume that they're not in their areas, so they go out at night. And the monsters kind of hold back and let them get used to going out. And then after this, this happens in a town that the kids visit, they descend upon them and they decimate them. That's the monsters are smart. They they lure people into a sense of false safety and then they then they go after them. And so this government organization knows that all of this is happening, knows that this is a desperate need and does their best to protect everyone, to provide all the resources, the antidotes for any exposure to you know, fur, slime, <laughs> anything. If you, if you get encounter one of the Umbra, you might get a little bit on you and have a terrible rash that could poison you over time if you don't have the antidote. Um, but also making sure that these kids, you know, are taken care of. I have a scene where the director of the organization um, talks with my protagonist, talks with Nora, because she hasn't been trained and is really concerned that she isn't ready to go out and do this dangerous work and lets her know that if she's not ready, she doesn't have to. And that's another, you know, important, important part because I think they, the kids are taken care of. They don't, they are not sent out to fight these monsters unless they are ready, unless they feel they're ready, unless they're the director of the organization feels they're ready, unless the head, the senior knight, the, the oldest kid in the group feels they're ready, and the adult, the legendary, who's in charge of each group, who kind of oversees things, feels they're ready. If anyone, anyone in any part of that feels that someone shouldn't go out, they don't, because they don't risk children's lives. And if everything went according to plan, and if everyone was, you remember their training, and went out fully rested and so forth as they're supposed to, they wouldn't be in a lot of danger. Because one thing about the Umbrai, they don't, um, they don't go after children quite so quickly. They falter before they go after them. So that falter, that moment in between seeing the child and attacking gives the child time to um, defeat them, to attack them. And so they would have a really high success rate. The group that Nora's part of is really good, really athletic and really just really, really good at destroying monsters. And so they, 
put themselves in a really rough situation where they bring their adult out as a lure, which brings massive numbers of the Umbrai up to them. But they, they do quite well. They defeat them very well. The director of the institution doesn't like that they do that, though, because that puts them more at risk. But I thought as I was writing that, they were a bit daring, too, and confident the way that other age of kids gets, you know, just feeling um, invincible. When in fact, they're not, but they are a little bit. There was a time, maybe, I don't know, 2018, 2019, where I would have thought, no, surely these adults would have read about the evidence of the Umbra and they would, no, don't, don't go out there, the monster <laughs> really real but then i watched people walking around maskless in grocery stores and everywhere else oh never mind um was that a factor when you're when you're are you writing this during the pandemic when are you writing That's this funny because i wrote this before the pandemic i wrote this wrote the first draft in december 2019 and those scenes of the adults going out at night even when they weren't supposed to was there in the first draft and so as i began to revise it while the pandemic was happening, I thought, wow, this is, this is exactly, this is parallel in so many creepy, creepy ways. But I described a world that I thought was worse than the one we lived in. And it turned out to be a lot closer to the one we lived in as I continued my revisions, which is really, really stinks. But of course made my, my wish fulfillment elements, you know, um, more for, more fulfilling in a way, more pointed and just more, I mean, because I'm modeling, I'm modeling how the world should be. I'm modeling respecting kids. Kids will be our future right now. I mean, we all, we all know that kids will be the ones, their imagination and their ability to think critically will define what our future is. And so this government organization embodies that sense but I model too, you know, treating kids well, supporting kids despite, supporting kids in the, wherever they are in their lives, just being there for them. That's what this organization tries to do. And of course, taking care of them after their service, taking care of their families. It's a strangely, given, given the context, it's a strangely warm world. I had a book reviewer who, who called it, she just said that, that was, this was the, the healthiest squad she had ever read, this group of kids, the healthiest squad, because they really are there for each other. They really support each other in a way that um, I, wish, I wish all people could. Well, I think we just, we need the Umbri to, to come into our reality. We've got uh, spider monsters chasing us every night. By God, we're gonna come together. <laughs> <laughs> we hope, but maybe not. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, what is it? The uh, famous last line in a good man is hard to find. She'd have been a good woman if there'd been someone there to shoot her every day. That's it's what we need. You'd be good people if we had spiders threatening us every day. <laughs> or every night. <laughs> so I was uh, curious because you are dealing with monsters and you are dealing with, with quite some moments. Where do you decide how frightening is too frightening? How scary are you allowed to get? I usually push it and then I dial it back. So um, for this book, in some of the subsequent drafts, it got pretty dark. 
it got pretty, pretty awful. And that's when I dialed it back. I just rewrote those scenes and I thought, and I tried to, you know, when I read over each draft, I, I, after I finish a draft, I let it sit for at least a week. I try to let it sit for a month if possible so I can read it with fresh eyes. When I do, I, I look at that specifically because I do have a tendency toward, toward darkness and angst. And that's not always appropriate, not to the high levels to have in middle grade fiction. So I look at that. And I try to make sure I balance that with a lot of warmth. And fortunately for this, the warmth was, was coming through and just make it just really thinking about each character as, um, as a true human being, each major character, but also each minor character, thinking about where they were coming from, what their stories were. I think that helped create um, a very warm and very real feeling environment. But the warmth is big. When I, when I read the final pass pages just before this was sent out to be printed, to, ready to make any final, final, mm, tiny changes. I couldn't change any of the plot, but I read it through carefully. I read it aloud to make sure I wasn't missing any, you know, typos. And I was, I was struck by the warmth, how much, how, how really, really warm this book is. So even though it has so much scary stuff, it's, I think, tempered by the relationships with the kids as they're out fighting, you know, monsters are descending upon them and somebody makes a joke, you know, and people are there and somebody helps out somebody else who, you know, might have missed or the monster's about to attack, you know, bite their ankle or something. And suddenly someone's, someone's always there for, they're always there for each other. And so I think that that helps balance <laughs> the scary stuff. I, uh, I mentioned uh, in the intro, I also write horror as well as middle grade. And so I consistently have a problem where I know my, 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 my uh, middle grade books are a little bit too dark, a little bit too violent in spots because I, 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 I will alternate usually between I'll write one horror story and then, all right, well, that's enough of that side. Now let's do the, the warmer side. But you know, there's a little bit on both sides. Uh, so when I write the horror, I have to cut back some of the kitty stuff and, and make sure it's as dark as it needs to be. And then the opposite when it comes time. Mm -hmm. to so I know that's consistently an issue for me. I, I can guarantee draft two, draft three, I'm going to spend uh, uh, making this a little bit nicer. Do you have those consistent issues that you know that, hey, oh, yes. this is uh, a Diane uh, Maker is special that I need to watch for? Oh, yes. I mean, it, it really is the darkness. It is the, um, it is the, the bleak, I would say the bleakness because I do write um, tense worlds where the stakes are high and <laughs> very high, <laughs> deadly in most cases. And so I have to, I, I, do, I do have to dial it down despite those wonderful fourth graders who are thirsting for, <laughs> of, thirsting for fictional violence, which I understand where they're coming from. It gives them the chance to, to vicariously live this, you know, that's something kids that age often, kids that they, my largely my readership age are beginning to feel less powerful um, in their lives. They have a lot depend, a lot of people um, require things of them. They have heightening responsibilities as they get older. I mean, you think about the break between elementary school and middle school, suddenly whoomph, that homework load and all of all of that, and suddenly you're expected to be a mini adult with your massive homework and responsibilities. And so, and I think a lot of kids start doubting themselves. I and mean, that's when people's confidence begins to shake. 
And so um, bleakness comes naturally when I'm writing about kids at that age, but that's something I just need to need to work on. I want, I want my readers to find emotions that they feel in my books, but I also want them to feel strengthened by the choices my characters make or feel even, I, I want them to feel superior. It's just my characters in some cases and say, ooh, that was not a good idea. I've had some, some people, I had one, one, one kid uh, say about the dress books, she rushes into dangerous situations. That's not safe. And I was like, no, it's not. And it makes it a really interesting novel, I think. But, you know, what would you have her do? And he's like, I, I, I wouldn't do that. I was like, good, because yes, it is dangerous. Good for you for knowing that. Good for you for being able to say that's not a good idea. And she gets herself in all kinds of awful situations, which, of course, you want to do in a middle grade novel. Well, that's who you want to be and who you want to read about. Uh, who I want to be? I want to be here, nice and safe and and, and warm with my my PlayStation and my <laughs> my books. <laughs> Life is good, but do I want to read about me? No, that sounds unduly boring. Let me read about somebody who's a risk taker, uh, risk taker who's going to make bad decisions at least for the first half of the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, another thing I, uh, I I noticed with uh, uh, with with this story is you've got forty seven chapters and three hundred twenty one pages as well as an epilogue. So how do you structure your chapters? When do you decide it's time for a chapter break? I assume that that's intentional to keep it frequent, frequent breaks, and also to give your reader the feeling of accomplishment that they've got a lot of a lot of chapters behind them. And also the cliffhangers. Also the cliffhangers, because I always that's a big thing. When I was working on the Maddle's daughter, my son was in third grade reading a lot of middle grade fiction, and I read aloud so many drafts to him. And he was incredibly helpful. Third grade's a great age. I, I, love, I love those kids. And he was wildly enthusiastic about this book and able, but, but just really solid and critical, which was perfect. I needed that and having that from somebody who was my readership, you know, right there in the house telling me, this is boring. This makes no sense. This is good. This is exciting. And he taught me how to make um, cliffhanger chapter endings and how to get that sense of when the chapter should stop to you know you're reading along and it's satisfying but you reach a point where suddenly something's about to happen you hold your breath and that's boom I stop the chapter because then my son would say keep reading when I did that and so I'd have to go on to the next chapter that was my intention to um, inspire that reaction in him so we would discuss even with some chapters where I where I put the break, and um, I think I just developed a sense of that. Of sometimes I cut it too close, and sometimes I let it extend too long. But I always go back in the revisions and and find those. And that's why my chapters are short, just to have that that tense moment. I also try not to have chapters in the in my word file that are more than eight pages, if possible, just because. It starts getting long and really long chapters, usually for my kind of fiction, fast paced adventure fiction, if it gets beyond eight pages, it's baggy and I need to cut something. You know, I don't have enough, I don't have enough going on. There's too much talking or too much description or empty action. That's possible too. I need to have something um, that makes it, that fills it out properly. 
without loading on too much else. So in the weeds follow-up, I know uh, readers or writers who are listening or uh, listed just want to know, uh, eight pages, uh, how many, what's the word count for the novel? And then also how, what, how are those pages set up? Are we talking double space, single space? What kind of well, font? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, they're, um, they're double space pages. Sometimes I go up to 12, but usually if I go up to 12, I have to have a really good reason for that. I have to, I don't have many chapters that are that long and um, four or five pages is about right to have a lot of, a lot of action. Yeah, sometimes I go to 12. So, um, gosh. Probably two, probably four thousand words. Maybe I don't know. I don't know. The the full my books are ten ten. To, it's hard to think. Cause I for each revision, maybe fifty five. I aim for fifty five thousand words for the whole manuscript. In my in my first draft, most of the time sixty at the most. I think Secret of the Shadow Beasts was seventy to start, and I trimmed it down. I think it ended up in the in the mid 60s and it's yeah yeah it feels like a shorter it actually feels like it's the same length as my other books because it's the same size but the other books have um an extensive author note about the historical period and then also glossary so that adds a lot of pages to those which makes them seem longer but secret of the shadow beast is a, is a is a bit longer than the others certainly with the epilogue which is, I think it's just, let's see, I think it's just a few. It's interesting because it, it looks like it's always shorter in, yeah, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. Yep, five pages, <laughs> the epilogue. And you're not worried when you're seeing that first draft, like, oh, but it's 70 or I'm at 80, that's fine, because I know that there's lots of stuff that I can go through and cut. Unfortunately, <laughs> if all it was brilliant and perfect the first time. I have a, in my school presentation. Oh, go ahead. I said, when am I going to get to take divine dictation? Once wrapped and done, that would be perfect. <laughs> oh, gosh. In my, in my school presentation, I have a, a picture of a massive stack of manuscript pages, and it's 700 pages. And I tell people, this is what I threw away. In, to write The Mad Wolf's Daughter for the many, many, many drafts. I figured that out one day of how many pages I discarded in total, and 700, which might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but not by much, because I do, I do, I do tend to rewrite a lot, even though the bones are still there, at least for that, my first book. I've, I think Margaret Atwood says you, there's no guarantee that you will get better as you write. I think I have got better. I think, you know, just working, working with um, great readers and great editors um, and reading a lot and paying attention to what I read and paying attention to what I write. I think I have got better. And I know I wrote fewer drafts, fewer completely. Well, yeah, I wrote, I wrote three for Secret of the Shadow Beasts. I don't know how many I wrote for. Mad, the Madwell's Daughter, but that was my first book, so I was figuring it out. My first, my second middle grade, I wrote a different one before that, which who knows, maybe I'll go back to that one day, but it's very problematic. <laughs> I make that joke, taking divine dictation, although it occurred to me if that actually happened, I would say, quiet, God, I'm trying to write, I'm, I need to focus. You know, you're going to have to revise that anyway, because revision is Revision is the divine moment. Revision is the discovery. 
Um, well, I read that uh, you're you're you are a big believer in doing kind of a loose uh, plot the first time around that you change. What what is your writing process from from start to finish? I come up with a basic premise of the whole novel, so I know what the beginning is. I usually have an opening scene in my mind. I usually have the premise, like I know this is going to be a novel about you know, like for Shadow Secret of the Shadow Beast, I knew it would be a, a novel about the Umbrai. And then I often, sometimes I start with a character first. It, it usually, they usually come hand in hand. I have a character and I have a world enter my mind at the same time. And that's happened. Nora Kemp was a character who had been in a different story, actually. that I'd been mulling over how to, um, how to make that a, a better story. And I just, when I, for some reason, when I realized that Secret of the Shadow Beasts would be and would would come that the that the monsters would come from environmental degradation, so even though that had nothing to do with Nora Kemp's story in the other other version. I suddenly thought she's the perfect kid to be in this one with that as the backdrop, and suddenly it all I mean, the characters um, in her order, um, the other kids just came. They just came to my mind somehow. Somehow they just came, and oh gosh, I think I'm going off on a tangent from your question. <laughs> I think the question was a tangent to begin with, so we're fine. <laughs> we're lost in the woods together. We'll, oh, we'll find our way out. But no, I... I, I, I the writing process. That's yeah, it. You sketch uh, ideas first, and then you figure out the storyline, and then you write the first draft. Is that every time? Yes, yes. So I come up, I come up with my basic plot. Um, I come up with really basic plot. So beginning, middle, and end. I know what my opening scene is going to be. I know more or less what's going to happen in the middle because middles are often baggy and hard to write. So I think about some kind of mini climax or discovery that's going to happen in the middle. And then the end has to be this big, exciting. I know, and sometimes the end changes often, actually. Very often the end changes completely from what I originally envisioned. But it's, some of the elements are the same. So I'm going toward what happens often when I'm writing is that I I have my characters and they're, you know, they're chugging along and they're doing their thing and it's just wonderful. And I'm discovering things about them and about the story as I'm writing. And I'm midway through and I think actually with all the all that I know now, that ending doesn't make sense. This ending does. So I'll rewrite the ending in my mind, or at least the skeleton of the ending while I'm writing. But I come up with my characters, I do a quick. A quick character sketch, I sometimes write actually pages in my notebook of who they are and what their backgrounds were to understand their psychology, um, write down elements, key elements of their appearance so I don't forget to be consistent. And um, I always write down that at the very least um, names of my cast and who they are and a couple of details, usually personality based. And then, and then I just write, yeah, my, my rough draft. And then I just let it let it all out there and fix it in revisions. Do you find I find that even if the ending changes, having an ending in mind at least gives you a goal to strive toward, right? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. But I find I can't um, I can't force it to the end. Sometimes I sometimes I have, and you know you can tell when when you've made the ending happen and it doesn't want to happen. <laughs> the characters actually don't want to go there. Well, if the ending is exactly what you planned, did you really go on a journey? 
yeah, did you really learn anything? I mean, that's the thing, writing a novel, you probably, I'm sure you feel this way too. It's, you, it's, a, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful discovery. I do. Yeah, it is. It is a wonderful discovery. And sometimes it's painful because it's not happening fast enough. And I was over a deadline by a week ago when I'm still working. But... <laughs> oh, gosh, deadlines. <laughs> That's why I write. I was telling you just before we talked that I write in the morning and in the evening, my day job in the middle. Um, that's why I have those two writing periods so that even if the first one doesn't go well, I have my second one. If the first one goes well, great. Then I have a chance to do even more in the evening. I've trained myself to just be able to sit down and if I, if I have a novel, it's the, it's the, um, the pre-writing stage when I'm just imagining a new work. That's the harder part. That's when I need to spend a lot of time daydreaming and just um, sketching out ideas and trying things back and forth. But once I'm in my first draft, I can just sit down and go. I've somehow trained myself to let my mind open and just do it. And then I often go back and rewrite but it's funny, there's a, there's a scene in um, The Madeleine's Daughter near the end, I won't describe it because I'll probably give away a lot of plots, but I remember writing it one morning when I was so tired, I hadn't had enough sleep and I just wrote it and I thought, oh, this is, this is terrible, but I'll be able to rewrite it. I barely changed that scene. I think I've cut, I think my editor asked me to change like one sentence in it that seems almost exactly the way it was when I wrote it because somehow, even in my <laughs> half awake state, I was able to get to the point of what was happening. I think it's when you know your characters that well, you know, they're just, they're telling the story. Yeah, hopefully if you're doing it right, you get to a point where the characters are doing more work than you, at least as much work as you are, maybe not more. <laughs> Do you, um, with your, the structure of your, what, what, what does that first session look like? Do you have a, a specific start time and a, and a specific goal you need to cover during that time? I, I don't give myself word count goals um, just because I find that, I find that I either struggle and I don't come close and then it's just frustrating. Some, I, I just, I try to, I try to be gentle with myself, especially when I'm beginning a novel and if I'm struggling with the beginning, I grab a I grab one of the books I have beside me. I grab a, a mentor text, as what kids and kids call them in school, and I just will open it and jump in and read something, and just just to remember how this is done, you know, and that this can be wonderful. Um, where is it? Yeah, Philip Reeves, "Here Lies Arthur." My goodness, this was my mentor text for the Madwell's daughter. So often, this is a brilliant story historical novel of what the real King Arthur might have been like. And um, the research is incredible. The writing is stunning. Uh, just the writing is beautiful. The action is intense, thoughtful. There's so much heart. It's just a perfect, perfect novel. And so I would jump into that one often when I was hitting a difficult point with the Madwell's daughter. Just when I was having trouble getting started, I just jump in and, and read something. So that that helped, but I don't I don't give myself a word limit because I either struggle or I vastly <laughs> write way more than um, than what I need because I am I'm a fast writer and if it's going well, if I say okay in this hour, um, I'll write you know aim for a thousand words I might write fifteen hundred just it might all come out, or I might write two hundred because it 
was hard. And at least I'll say if I've got something down or if I know where, I'll, where I'm going for my next one, um, my next writing session, then, I'm, then it's a successful day. As long as I have something done for those two sessions, then I, then I feel okay. So for um, starting time, the summer is great. My son doesn't have school. I work from home these days. My day job um, lets me do that. So I can sleep as much as I need to, um, as long as I start my day at nine o'clock and have my writing time, you know, before. So I usually get up, you know, between five and six and I just grab my cup of tea and I sit down and write for the first hour or two of the morning. Then I hastily get ready. <laughs> On school days, it's a little bit different. <laughs> Well, just you and me, nobody, nobody from your uh, employment listing. If you had a great idea or something was going really well during the day, would you ever maybe eh, take a moment off from the day job, finish this, but then get more to the day job later, of course? I have done that. I have worked later if I've needed to. My lunch break, my lunch, even when I worked in my office pre-pandemic, um, I'd bring my notebook and I'd sketch things. Actually, it was, uh, it was really helpful when I was driving to my office. I'd had a, about a 35, 40 minute commute and I would have my phone on record on voice memo and I would brainstorm as I drove in every day. And that really helped me with um, the Mad Wolf's Daughter and the Hunt for the Mad Wolf's Daughter a little bit for Secret of the Shadow Beasts. But of course, pandemic began, so we were all home <laughs> during most of, most of that, all my revisions. But yeah, having having a, a commute, I've I've learned I've learned to go without um, that, those brainstorming sessions, which is which is odd. I might need to just go back to that somehow. Well, you just go for a drive, I suppose. Yeah. No specified uh, arrival. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if uh, this is a trap I might fall into, and uh, I assume you're stronger than me, but but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> When you have a really great first session and then the second session comes around, yeah, that first session was really great. Maybe we see what's on Netflix. Is that a. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. No, when I get, when I get into it, I am, I get, I get snared and sucked into the story. If it's going well, it just draws me in. And I want to see what happens next. You know, it's, if I'm writing, if I'm writing a good story, I'm interested in it. So I want to see what these characters do. Seven days a week, 365 days a year. Pretty much. I mean, I take I take breaks between ideas. It's, How long uh, break are we talking? Oh yeah. I mean, I need I need to because if you if you're on just finished one novel to start another one the next you know the next day or even the same day um, would be would be hard. So that's when I <laughs> that's when I turn on Netflix and that's when I read a lot. I tend to. I tend to just swallow middle grade books. I read my market, I read, read a lot of my market and I just will read three or four books at a time and just get myself away from what I just wrote to try to prepare for the new one. And sometimes it takes me longer because between novels, I need to, um, I need to come up with the idea. And then that's, that just requires that careful, um, that, that careful, quiet, peaceful, fruitful brainstorming session where you you want to come up with a really good idea you want everything to click and it sometimes takes a while for that to happen would it be great if you could just snap your fingers say great idea now yeah yeah well sometimes i have great ideas and i think this 
this is marketable, this is perfect. And I just, I don't know who the characters are. Or I, I can write who the characters are, but I don't know them. You know, I don't know them enough to write them in a work of fiction. Sometimes I try, sometimes I force myself. I have a book that I hope is going to be, I have a novel that I hope is going to be my next book where I did force myself to just sit down and write it because I loved the idea so much. I could even picture the cover in my mind. I know even who the cover artist, I know who I want as a cover artist. I mean, I'm that far into it. And so I just, um, I just kept that in my mind um, as I wrote. And then when I finished, I shared just a bit with my agent who said, you know, this is, this is a little, little, uh, your, your protagonist is a little hard to connect with. And I thought it's because he's not entirely real. <laughs> Good for you for noticing that. Everything else is exciting and wonderful, but um, yeah, he's the problem. So we talked a little bit about ways I could flesh him out. And I said, actually, this other character who's been creeping in the back of my mind, he's the protagonist of the story. So switch and um, I rewrote the whole book with um, this other protagonist's character in mind and suddenly it clicked then. But I needed to get that bare bones out before. And this is the next book that hopefully will eventually hopefully. be. We'll see, fingers crossed. I mean, you never, you never can tell, but hopefully. And this will be a male protagonist. Unusual. Because you've been writing uh, strong female protagonists or who had the sword that you always wanted uh, above your bed. <laughs> or the battle axe. <laughs> but I, I try to write... Uh, um, do you find it a bit of a challenge to switch uh, genders for your protagonist? Is there, have there been any unique differences as you're going? Not so much because I try to embody so much the male characters in my books too. You know, Emmerich and Tig, particularly Emmerich in the dressed books. I mean, I really... I really felt him strongly, and then um, and then the characters, the male characters, particularly Amar in um, *Secret of the Shadow Beasts*. I mean, I just I, he was a character I just associated with because he and I have a lot, <laughs> despite our very different backgrounds. He and I have a lot in common. We are. He has my, and this and this came. This felt natural in some ways. He is obsessed by medieval history the way I am. I've had to, they just, they just made it into that book. He's obsessed with history in general, but in particular medieval history. And um, just the way he looks at things, the way he tries to be responsible, that, that's a lot of, there's a lot of me in, in him. But I, I just, I understood him really well. And so for this character, um, he has a lot. There's, there's some wish fulfillment in him too. I can't talk about it too much because he might change. Who knows? Who knows? So much well, change. Make promises to a state audience right now. We'll absolutely yeah. do this. Count on it. March the calendars. We'll go ahead and pick a release date. <laughs> I, think all, I think all of my characters, whether they're uh, male or female, have um, have a lot of um, a lot of me. Or non-binary, they have a lot of me in them. So I just I I feel I feel these kids. <laughs> What's, uh, what's that famous Stephen King quote? Um, all the characters are me and the women are just me in dresses. Yeah, yeah. Which you're a main writer. So I feel like in Indiana, um, we Hoosiers, we have to say we love Kurt Vonnegut, whether we do or we don't. Uh, <laughs> happen, I mostly do. Uh, some of his stuff is aged a little bit poorly, but eh, what are you going to do? People, society hopefully will continue to get better. So we'll all age poorly eventually. 
but I, I, I do love Vonnegut, so I don't mind being asked about him or talking about his works. How do you feel about Stephen King? I think Stephen King is brilliant. I love that he's, you know, he's, he's said that um, he's a salami writer, but he writes really good salami. He writes fantastic salami. I mean, he has defined the horror industry. I think he's um, the, the horror genre. I mean, he really, he really gets under your skin. I think every, at least when I was growing up, every middle schooler and high schooler was reading Stephen King. And my God, the nightmares you get from, <laughs> from those books. But they were so, they were so relatable. I mean, he's, he's brilliant at taking utterly relatable situations and twisting them some deep, horrific psychological way. Ugh. But must make life easier in Maine as a, as a Maine author to, to be an actual fan as opposed to, yes, I'm aware of his work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think everyone, everyone's, and he's a, he's a wonderful, wonderful human being. I mean, he's just a really, really nice, thoughtful person. He's been an incredible philanthropist. He's rebuilt uh, the Bangor Public Library. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous library. He gave them massive grant. Um, massive challenge grant. He's just really, he really looks out for, for the state and supports arts, culture, but particularly libraries here. So I'm, I'm grateful to him for doing that. I feel like that shouldn't be a surprise. Like anybody who gets such a tremendous windfall should share it, but I know so often it goes the other way where they, they become Jeff Bezos and their little rocket ship and <laughs> The rest of the world locked out and under surveillance and all everything, all the money for, for me. I'm going to build a giant statue in my honor to, to be here forever. <laughs> I wonder if people like Stephen King, he, he tells the story of how he had um, this wall of rejections. He had all his rejections stapled up on his wall because when he first was submitting his work, he was rejected over and over. And this is all, you know, paper. So we'd get these back in his self-addressed stamped envelope. And he'd surround himself with the rejections um, that was motivating. But I think having, having had that, even with his incredible success, I think he's humble, you know, deep inside. I think he's a normal person deep inside. He probably would laugh if he heard me say that. <laughs> like, what were the stories I come up with? But, uh... you know, I did that because I read that he'd, he'd done that. I kept all my rejections up around me in my writing room for a while. Uh, opposite effect. It was demotivating. Oh, <laughs> like, oh. I looked rejection, rejection. Oh. See, I couldn't do that myself. I would, yeah, I would, I would find that crushing. I keep my, where is it? I have a thing my son wrote for me when he was, gosh, I think in second grade. It says, go mommy. And... A little Lego sculpture. This is a first place sculpture he made for me. So I keep these on my desk. And so I have the Go Mommy with my first place sculpture. You probably would say, oh God, don't mention that. But um, <laughs> these days, but that's, uh, that's, really, that's really important to me to have those, those little signs of belief around me. I think that's uh, way more motivating and endearing than a stack of rejection. Oh, yes. <laughs> so let's go back. I want to fill in a little bit of the, the missing gap, and then we'll we'll start to think about winding this thing down. Um, but you mentioned you you're writing in high school. You're you're there in the library putting your fantasy novel together, and then you don't start writing seriously again until 2007. So what happens in those missing years? Are you writing on and off? 
Oh no, I was I was writing. I I wrote I wrote forty four 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 novels, unpublished novels, first drafts throughout all those years. I just wrote for pleasure, and so I just wrote and wrote and wrote. I looked at a few times. I looked at publication, but I think the thing. I always thought that my work wasn't quite ready to be published, and I wasn't sure what to do about it. I, as I got older, I haphazardly revised it. As I got much older, um, I tried to take this even more seriously. I thought, okay, I've been writing for a long time. I think I'd like to get published now. I mean, I think I, I think this is ready. I think I have something I really believe in that that I could see being under my name. So, I did look for. Um, let's see. It was around 2000, 2007 when I really started trying to write for publication. And I had two different novels that I queried. One of them briefly had an agent who didn't like my revision, so we parted ways. And at that point I had rewritten the novel according to what she wanted into something I didn't like it either, and it was just, it was a mess. So put that aside, that was historical fiction for adults. And then I had another uh, middle grade that nobody made an offer on, which I can understand why it needs a lot of work. <laughs> but, um, and then, um, yeah, so I, 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 did, I did try at that point. I did, I was thinking about that a little bit more seriously in the early, early 2000s too, but trying to write you know, the perfect novel. I think that can be a, a trick for a lot of people, being too hard on yourself and your work before you share it with anyone. You see, I was afraid to share my work with people because I didn't want anyone to tell me it was bad, you know, and you have to be able to, to take that. Not that it's bad, no one should tell you that your work is bad, but um, you have to be able to take criticism, constructive criticism, and to see it as an opportunity. And I think I needed to just get to that place where I was ready for it, which is still hard, though. I think it's hard. It's hard for every writer I know. When my editor sends me the first edit letter, you just uh, feel this gut punch and, okay, get your glass of water. I usually do something else while I know it's sitting in my inbox before I sit down and read it and make sure I'm in the right frame of mind where I can go through and not be too crushed by <laughs> whatever I read. And a good editor um, will start with compliments. This is what I love about your work. These are three things that are fantastic. Here are some things that I think we could improve. And, you know, here's, some, here's a positive way of telling you all that's wrong with your novel. And then the end, this is fantastic. Though overall, I see a lot of promise in this. And here's one more thing I loved about it. Look, for, looking forward to working with you on this. You know, the sandwich model that makes it a lot easier to take so what what changed when did that come to a point where you you got at least to the mm -hmm. point where even though it's no fun you can you could take that criticism and and be published well i think i met my husband at a writer's conference and um we're both writers and so we began to exchange manuscripts um, then and have exchanged manuscripts ever since. And we're very good at being gentle with each other. And I think he helped me a lot be ready for this because I know that he was never, he would never try to um, hurt me, you know, through my writing. He'd never try to tell me that my writing was awful 
you never use those words for one thing. <laughs> but he will be he will be honest. I mean, we reached a wonderful stage where God, he's so helpful. I mean, in Secret of the Shadow Beasts, he read the first draft and he said, you know, this character Wilfred, who's Nora's best friend, her gaming friend, um, he said. I think you need to do something more with him because there's you you have a you have a really good character here. Maybe Nora could, I don't know, communicate with him somehow, call him, just how could she think about him even as the story goes on? Because you start out with this tight friendship. Where does that go? And I was so glad he mentioned that to me because when he said, How could she still be in touch with him? I thought gaming, the chat through the game. And so suddenly she brought a game, the game that they play along with her to the, um, the castle, the re retrofitted castle, where she's training to be a knight who fights the monsters, and she's able to chat with him. And those chats with Wilfred throughout the book are such powerful moments of Nora connecting with her home, but also her managing this friendship that, that she had before, the person she was before, and that, that changing, that changing friendship. Um, which reaches kind of um, heartbreaking points in some some parts of the book. And I just, I love, I love those chats and I'm just really grateful for, for that. So I, I think I've seen what happens. I think having that connection with somebody who could sensitively give me um, criticism, but also see how my work would improve. I think that was it when I really saw that happening. And when criticism, I, I, somehow I've managed to reach a point where I'm, open to criticism in such a way that it is inspiring. That when somebody says, this, is, this isn't working, I think, okay, do I agree? Often I do. How can I make this work? You know, how can I fix this? So, um, and that's when I come up sometimes with great ideas. And for Secret of the Shadow Beast, I remember I came up with a truly horrible idea and I rewrote the whole novel with this horrible idea that I thought would please my editor. Um, I sent the novel to my agent and I said, I'm really, before I send it back to my editor, I'm not sure about this angle. What do you think? And my agent wrote back and said, this is actually what I see underneath your novel. This is what I see underneath that, that theme, this, this government, the government is the most interesting part, not all this extra fantasy that you put on top. And I thought that was originally the point. And I went in a different direction. So that criticism from my agent helped so much because that, brought my novel right, right to the correct track, the track that ended up being the published book. So having a taste of seeing it work, that helped. I don't know how, I don't know how other people can reach that stage. It just, I, I, I tell my, my kid audiences when I do school talks to try to be open to criticism, um, be true to your work, know what's, know what's important to you in your work. Um, you know, be willing to accept criticism, but also feel empowered to reject criticism if you feel that they're not right. But do try to at least listen, because you may find that it's inspiring, that it does help. And know that it's always, almost always, for most people, um, given to you with positive um, encouragement, and positive intentions. It's meant to help. And so, you know, see it as that, see it as a learning process. It's hard to internalize that though, because it is hard when somebody tells you your work isn't perfect. <laughs> You're not perfect, yeah, sure. I know because we all we writers all say it's, it's us, it's not just our work. And that's that being able to separate yourself. But how can you separate yourself from your work when your 
putting yourself in your characters. Your characters are all parts of you. Your story is part of you. That's why, yeah, that's why criticism is so hard to take because it is personal. <laughs> you can't help but be personal. <laughs> well, I find that a little bit of time helps. Like, don't don't read this immediately after I wrote it. Don't I don't I can't hear your criticism then. Let me start another project. Let me get a little further on something else, and then I'll come back with fresh eyes, and I'll be able to agree that yes, okay, fine. Maybe you have a little bit of a point here. Um, although when you listen to people and their criticism is wrong, it's still worth listening to because they may be circling the actual problem yes. and they're not as brilliant as us. So they, <laughs> they, they, they can't identify it, but they can at least help us, uh, the brilliant writers, uh, uh, find it and fix it. I saw that your husband was a, a noted book critic. And my first thought was that it's either a tremendously wonderful um, resource to have there in the home or an absolute point of contention and terrible. So I'm, I'm glad to hear this going in the box. Yeah, he's a wonderful resource. He doesn't review um, middle grade. So it's, um, it's interesting. He, re he reviews a lot of literary fiction and um, foreign titles and nonfiction, and uh, he's 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 brilliant. So, and he writes he writes novels too, and it's just so he he under he understands. I think by by being a writer, he that makes him a great critic because he understands what people are trying to do, and he's very sensitive to what to what people are trying to write, and um, <laughs> doesn't doesn't bash people which I think is important. <laughs> so you are you able to set um, writing schedules that uh, where you're writing not, you know, in the same room, I assume, uh, or, or back to back? No, no, no. He's right there at the desk with you. That, no, no, that's he's... a point of contention. Don't do that. Yeah, uh, but are you able to set, okay, I'm going to write in the morning. Well, great. I'll write too, and then we'll meet in the afternoon, things of, of that nature. Well, he, he writes in his space, which is downstairs. I have my little nook here. This is where I write. We both write whenever, whenever we need to. He writes his novels whenever the time is right for him. And he comes up with his own schedule, mixing it with his book criticism. And I have mine on, usually, we don't usually write the same time. For a brief time, we had a house which was really tiny and we had to have the same office. And it was awful because we would write at the same time. And I'd hear him clicking away and I'd be like, oh, stop it, stop it, stop it. I have to plug my ears or you know, put in the earbuds so I could don't hear that the sound of your productivity while I'm still trying to think and vice versa. <laughs> so yeah, we, we, he tends to like to share his work as he's writing it. I like to finish my work before and then share it once it's done. And once I've let it sit for a bit and review it myself, because I just, I still want, I want it to be at some level of of something I can be proud of before I share it um, and where I can see, you know, where I can tell someone whoever's reading it, so my husband and my other beta readers, what to look for. Like what, like in general, if you notice things wrong, but in particular, here are three things that I, I need you to tell me about this, about this work that I'm, I'm wondering about. And it, it's just like what you said, the distance, giving yourself that distance from your own work, that, that helps you be open to criticism. Well, it's not useful to have somebody say your cake tastes like cake butter. That's because it's not baked yet. Give me a yeah. second. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Mrs. Kent uh, is also a writer in her office is on the other side of the house. She is back there writing as we speak. And <laughs> <I'm sure laughs> That's great. 
<laughs> a secret to a good marriage yes. right on opposite sides of that <laughs> exactly different floors just keep yourselves keep apart <laughs> and if possible write different kinds of fiction though i know some people who write the same fiction they and their spouse write the same fiction and i'm sure that's that's great and if we wrote the same that'd be interesting well even within the if you were literally writing the same genre i would think there would still be enough differences the Theoretically, I don't know. I haven't tried it. But, you know, we, we might be able to write a novel together. That could be interesting. I know people, who, husbands and wives, who write um, novels together. And so that would be interesting. Maybe it could be a fun date night, sitting around revising your, your book together. Your, your book together, yeah. We'll go out and we'll have a romantic dinner. And while we're sitting there afterward, we'll, we'll pull out our novel. And we'll <laughs> and argue about the, our characters and our scenes. <laughs> Uh, now my friends who uh, who co-write novels, they tend to write different sections or um, take a take a whack at it and then send it to their co-writer who will take a whack at it and they'll go back and forth or they'll write different chapters. They'll each have their the chapter of their perspectives. And um, and so each one will. I think I think I'd like that version because then you, you own your your section. But I do play well with others, but I, I like to have my my work close to me. Yeah, I don't think I'm uh, open much to to collaboration uh, because one of the one of the whole joys of being a writer is I get to be God in that universe. And if you're in there being co-God, hey, <laughs> it's sharing. You know, writers don't share well. <laughs> Some writers do. Oh, I wasn't kind of playing uh, with action figures with other kids when I was when I was young either. But no, <laughs> my action, my Batman toys have their own story going. I don't need your story. That's right. Star Wars crap coming over here and bringing space into Gotham City. Like this yeah. is quite fun. Yeah. I, I think that's probably just a personality type and just <laughs> 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 what it is. Uh, Diane Magris, have you ever seen a ghost and or a flying saucer? I might have been in a house with a ghost once. So when I was um, 13 years old, my dad had the amazing opportunity to exchange houses with a family in London. So they took our house on Mount Desert Island and we took their house in North London. And the first night we stayed there, I woke up in the morning to discover that all the pictures on the stairway, they had these beautiful pictures on the stairway, had been taken down and were in a pile at the bottom. And I do sleepwalk, or I have sleepwalked, but taking down all the pictures and putting them on the bottom, maybe it was me, maybe it was someone else in this 1800s row house in London. Who knows? Did you feel a presence in the house while you were there? I felt a lot of things, it was hard to tell. I was in this, I mean, it was, it was just so different and new and exciting and wonderful. If I did meet a ghost, I would instantly try to make friends with it. That's just who I am. So, and I haven't seen a flying saucer. I don't think so, no. Well, what a novel you could make after long conversations with your, your friend, the ghost that told you about the afterlife and what to expect. Oh, can you imagine? Or even just to ask, how are you feeling? You know, what does it feel like? What are you worried about? What are you thinking about? What do you care about? You know, I'd want to know where they're coming from. 
We want to listen. That's fascinating. What do you worry about now that you don't have to worry about death anymore? Yeah, yeah. That's what are afraid of. That's what I'd want to know. If they, if they, they'd have. To, see, I'd have to make friends too. Those are, those are deeply personal questions. So. Yeah, no, that's definitely that's date three, I date four. Say. Don't, don't do that on the first meeting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what can I do for you to make to show you my goodwill? That's my, that'd be my first question. Uh, and um, I'm watching our time, and it's 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 flown by. Uh, we we are uh, almost past what I said, so it's it's a good time to to call it a day. But I know that you're going to write more books, and I'm going to have more questions for you. So hopefully, we'll we'll do this again sometime. It's been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate you making the time. Thank you. Uh, for, uh, uh, for today, my my final question is always some variation of. Uh, if you could go back to the start of your career, middle of your career, wherever it would have been useful to you, and give yourself some advice that would have made a difference for you and might make a difference for everybody who's watching or listening to us right now, what would you go back and tell yourself? Hmm. I would go back, I think, to myself when I was first starting to get published or first starting to try to get published and just say, keep writing, just keep writing but do it for pleasure and don't worry about getting published. Do it, try that when you're ready, but just write for pleasure. I think that would be, that's something I think that every, every writer, even after you're published has to remember because once you're published too, you feel this urge to keep, keep having books out. Um, you feel this intense pressure, this intense, criticism of yourself if you don't have for me if I don't have a book out every year even though the publishing process takes so long so it's it's rarely possible for that to happen um and just remind myself even now I think that's a yeah a, a, a advice I'd give myself starting from when I started to try to get published to the present day even to can just write find joy in your work and that's the most important part of writing because once you a, you will have fun writing if you find joy in your work. And B, if it's a joyful work, if it's that kind of pure brilliance, which comes out when you're enjoying your work, you will have a better chance of being published. There are no guarantees, but don't let that define you. I think that's the big, the big advice. That is the perfect note to end on. Uh, where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? You can find me at www.dianemagris.com. That's my website. And I'm at Diane Magris, D-I-A-N-E-M-A-G-R-A-S on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, esteemed audience, for more interviews, almost as good as this one, uh, with literary agents, editors, authors, the world's best people, book people, as well as for more information on my books and downloading your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beast, you can get all of that at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, and God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.